You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the functional nerdverse. All right. So, Patrick, we've talked before about how the behind the scenes world of making the episodes happens, <laughs> you know, and that and, and you've joked uh, most recently at Worldcon, but sometimes in other places that your job is to contribute, you know, the editing and the technology and the, the background knowledge of the squirrel. And that my job is to, you know, provide structure and thoughtful questions and various things and therefore yes. let's do research on our guests and plan plan crap. And so this morning I was doing research on, on today's guest and I've decided that she is the coolest person on the planet. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so I am just inordinately proud of myself for having booked Jenna Rose Nethercott. Jenna Rose, how are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm also excited to be in the presence of the coolest person on the planet Earth. So I probably wow. need to explain myself. No pressure. Uh-huh. No pressure. Yeah, sure. yeah, no, no, please, no, please do. At all. Yeah, the Go expectations on. have been set. So, so background on Jenna Rose. Jenna Rose is a poet and a folklorist and uh, has, has worked in a number of different capacities using those skills. She's an associate producer for the podcast Lore, where she does a lot of the historical and, and supernatural research that provides a foundation for many of their episodes. Part of the Traveling Poetry Emporium, which is essentially bespoke poetry for profit, which, you know, are, the idea of poetry and profit generally don't work together, but with lovely typewriters and going to, to events to create things on the spot for people who probably have fairly wily ideas of what to answer Bushy with. And of course, her debut novel, which came out a couple of weeks ago on September 13th, Thistlefoot, which is also one of the coolest things ever. So Jenna Rose, talk to us about Thistlefoot here, because it seems like it's right in this wheelhouse of what you have have been doing with your life and your creativity for, for a long time. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, everything that I do really is some amalgamation of like spooky stuff and folklore and fantasy. And so Thistlefoot is the story of Isaac and Bellatine Yaga, who are two contemporary Jewish American siblings that learn they are to receive a mysterious inheritance which turns out to be neither land nor money, but actually a sentient house on chicken legs. From uh, For those of you who that sounds familiar to, it is from the kind of infamous classic Slavic folklore character Baba Yaga. She lives in a house on chicken legs in the old stories. So meanwhile, the story of Thistlefoot dips into the past and follows this ancestor of theirs, as she lives in a Jewish shtetl in the year of 1919, embroiled in the Russian Civil War and uh, upcoming pogroms perpetrated mm-hmm. against the Jewish people. So yeah. it's part adventure romp. It's part historical piece. It's a blend of Jewish history and Eastern European folklore and American travel stories. Sort of all these sort of – sorry, my cat is – <laughs> we are fine with cats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me try that again. Cat, cat moms are fine. 
Uh huh. She loves to scream while I'm in podcast interviews. It's her favorite activity. <laughs> That's Captain Vivian Cutpurse, the fiercest pirate on the seven seas. Lovely. Well, Hob- Hobbs, my cat, has not paid us a visit, and I think it's because currently the basement of my house is the coldest place in the Chicagoland area. Oh no! And so he's. I think he's found a sunbeam upstairs, as is Justin Wright. I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, so that's Thistlefoot. It's, it, there's a lot going on. It's a fun time. It's a sad time. My favorite combination of times. It's spooky <laughs> and it's hopeful and it's adventurous and it's, I think, hopefully thought provoking. Uh, yeah. So so before Tracy gets any more serious with us, uh, when, when you said that your cat likes to scream when you're doing podcasts, has anybody seen Thor Love and Thunder? I have not yet. I, I also not, have not yet. So, I mean, okay. I saw the trailer. I'm really letting you down here. But, but but you're familiar with the the concept of the screaming goats. Oh yeah. yeah, sure, yes. So there are screaming goats in 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 the movie, and mm. when you said that your cat likes to scream, all I heard in my head was the goats going wah, wah, the whole time. It's, yeah, it's that's yeah. basically it. You nailed it. <laughs> Yeah, we, we had a cat screaming serenade earlier today, actually, uh, just before I came downstairs to get set up for recording, because there's a there's a, a neighborhood cat of some infamy. She has a home. We know whose home she lives in. Her name is Lisa. And Lisa is like a semi long hair, black cat, flea collar and stuff. And she hates everything and <laughs> apparently everyone. And her family lets her out. As, as they see fit, and she likes to prowl around, but she particularly likes to hang out in front of our house because we have lots of bird feeders. So it's sort of like going to the drive A buffet. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, she's just like going to go see what's what. And we have a cat tree for Hobbs out in the front window because he too likes to watch the action at the bird feeders. But being an indoor-only cat, you know, it's all sort of imaginary for him. Well, on the regular, she'll come and she'll sit in just a particular spot in the bushes right next to where the bird feeders are to scope out the action. That also happens to be in the perfect location for Hobbs to see her coming. And he will just lay on his side. And he will sing and he will wallow. And he will try <laughs> it's to like a Romeo her. and Juliet balcony right, and he'll try situation. to charm her. And every time she just turns and with her perfect yellow eyes will gaze up into the window and go... <laughs> and, that's and, great and radio just, yeah, yeah he just tries all the harder um and so <laughs> yeah i think there's we're, we're 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 feeling the vibes of sort of complexity and tragedy here <laughs> definitely yeah. so i'm 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 curious uh uh have you seen the witcher season two on netflix i have not they, they, they have the baba yaga uh, at least they have oh, what looks like the Baba Yaga because it's the house on the feet in the darkness sure. and and moving. Th- oh, and it was it was such a cool visual because because you know that that's been around for so long and, and it's been in so many different stories and stuff. So it's just it was really cool to see a, a very good representation of it. Oh, totally! On, on I'll have screen. to check that out. I love yeah. all the various shape shifting versions of this house throughout time, and yeah. I mean, it just speaks to sort of its folkloric success that it has this yeah. adaptability. You know, you've got the Howl's Moving Castle version of it. Yep. You've got, uh, yeah, th- you've got these houses on stilts in various tales and films, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I just, I, I'm honored to be able to add a little puzzle piece or like a link in that chain, I guess, to sure. This legacy of wily wandering houses. That's awesome. I, you know, and Baba Yaga, of course, has sort of like 
dug her claws into the larger Western and, and of course, Eastern European, its origin point kind of um, vision of, of storytelling with a little bit of a horror thing. But, but, but Baba Yaga, it's unfair to her, I think, to read her as a strictly horrifying character because, of course, there are Baba Yaga tales where she is she is helpful but for a price or she is, you know, surprisingly adept and apt at sort of dealing with a situation where she meets out a kind of brutal justice. And so she's a, she's a kind of interesting figure in that I think she is more layered than um, I was thinking about this recently. Uh, my, my brother and uh, my, my kids and I took a trip to Michigan several weeks back to visit my dad and we brought a mess of board games with us. And one of the games we brought is called horrified. Um, and it, it has different versions of it. The version of it we were playing is like based on Americana mythology. And it's basically like a, like a, a cooperative board game where you're a paranormal investigator who's trying to deal with weird, spooky stuff happening in a town that's endangering the populace. But all of the weird, spooky stuff is the stuff drawn out of Americana. So there's like the Jersey Devil and there's a Chupacabra and there's, um, you know, the Banshee of the Badlands. And of course, there's, um, you know, the Bigfoot and so on and so on. If you look at sort of all of those characters sort of drawn out of North American mythology, they're generally not nuanced. Like they don't yeah, no. have those kind of layers. I mean, yeah. And Bigfoot's I, real. So. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll take that out of the equation. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think that if you dig into any folklore character deeply enough, you will find nuance in it. It may not be yeah. that the character themselves is like good or harmful the way Baba Yaga is. And I mean, that's, that's the thing that drew me to her in the first place is that she's this volatile character and you never know what you're going to get with her. You know, she's, she's a moody little lady (laughs) and uh, that mood may involve her like solving all your problems and leading you out of the wood, or it might involve eating you and who knows what you're going to get. I think part of that may have come from sort of the natural evolution we see in so many folkloric crone figures when Christianity came into the picture, where Uh, these characters that originally were sort of wise elder healer women, then when the church saw that kind of, you know, secular medical power as a threat, began to villainize those figures. Hmm. So... I'd be curious to hear sort of the earliest Baba Yaga stories, which is kind of impossible to find, and see if there was a journey in which she became more sinister over time. I mean, now we see this resurgence where she's becoming kind of this feminist icon um, and is straying away from that uh, kind of evil side, and we're finding the sympathies in her again. So it's fun that she has these cycles of her good and her dark sides. Um, But in terms of, like... American folklore figures like the Jersey Devil, a fave. Everyone loves the Jersey Devil. Um, yeah, well, cryptids are different, I think, in a way, because they're animals, yeah. you know, they don't yeah. have the nuance that a humanoid character would have. But also, just my favorite thing about folklore in general is that if you kind of peel back the layers, peel back the initial story on top that may seem really simplistic, it'll often say something much more nuanced about the community that's telling the story. So, you know, something like the Jersey Devil or Mothman or what have you does actually reveal, like, what the fears and the anxieties and the paranoias of a community are at that point in time. 
which always has a bit more complexity than just like, ah, it's a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we only care about the Ozark howler in the Ozarks because it, it addresses some of the fears that we have about like remote mining communities and sort of always being on kind of the edge of subsistence and that the howler is this thing that sort of lurks in these spaces that you don't, you can't fully control and that you can't, you know, fully yeah. um, depend upon. Yeah, exactly. So that makes a lot of sense. I've never understood the Jersey Devil one because I always thought Bon Jovi was pretty cool. So, um, <laughs> but, but I did, yeah, I did it, like, <laughs> I did like in uh, in what we do in the shadows. The vampires told Guillermo that uh, the Jersey Devil is something that the vampires made up uh, just to cover all the dead bodies from them hunting people. Yeah, but yeah. then it ended up being real. Yeah, and then it ended up being on real. their hunting yeah. trip. <laughs> <laughs> Great episode. Finally, one I have seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Couldn't be three for three or zero for three, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible in that I watch everything and Tracy has no time to watch anything. Uh, she's a responsible adult. With, with well, no, d- by know. our powers combined, we are a, we are a person <laughs> with a well-balanced schedule, right? But yeah, mm-hmm. you, he's uh, one of Patrick's superpowers is that he has this like broad swath of like video media literacy that like for yeah. me largely stopped about 2005 because <laughs> that, you know, was when lots of other things like, Oh, I don't know, children and jobs and whatnot were happening I, with me. But yeah. Yeah. I have a weird superpower in that I can, I can put things on in the background mm-hmm. and do other things and still be completely aware of whatever it is in the background. That is powerful. Yeah. So that, that a With lot of times that lets me. great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So that lets me get through a lot of stuff that otherwise I wouldn't be able to get through. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. So I feel like we, we've kind of set the table here for a question that I'm just deeply interested in as someone who has like listened to lore. And uh, when I, when I was in conversation about getting you on the podcast, I had no idea you were even connected to lore. And so it was like, <laughs> it was this kind of like, Wee, it's a surprise. Um, so, okay, if you're doing historical and supernatural research, knowing that the goal is to sort of craft a larger story that's going to be shared in the format of a podcast and all of that, like, what are the standards that you have in mind for like, this is, these are the types of, of pieces of information that I, that I want to look for. These are the sorts of stories or uh, pieces of folklore that I don't want to filter into into our plans like what are what guiding principles are you using here is it just sort of like go jenna rose find us weird things do cool stuff the way that we work as a team because there's a team of us that work on lore it's like a, a small really sweet team that's like our slack channel is all just like links to like cursed sarcophagi that someone has opened ill advisedly and uh photographs of haunted dolls that we found in uh thrift stores sarcophagus chat yeah exactly um, hashtag cozy sarcophagus. <laughs> and, uh, but the process is we as a team have like a yearly or like maybe twice yearly pitch meeting where we all bring ideas for episodes to the table. We pitch those ideas and then, uh, you know, ho- hopefully a year's worth get greenlit. And then, so I have this spreadsheet of all of the 
subjects, basically, in a row of what the episodes are going to be, and uh, a rough three-act structure. So, you know, which story is going to be act one, which historical fact is going to be act two, etc. And so the research that I do is then fleshing out each of those stories. So uh, the first one that I ever did for Lore was on Lake Lanier, which was this man-made reservoir where uh, there's been a just a disproportionate number of drownings. So, you know, for me, that involved first doing a bunch of research into the history of this region, the history of this lake, the process in which it was built, uh, and then spending all this time, this is my favorite part, combing through like newspapers.com. Big job <laughs> perk is I get access to newspapers.com. So just like searching for drownings throughout history um, in this lake. And then, you know, the next act is focusing in on a particular ghost story. So a few rules of thumb that we like to stick by is we try to keep our stories prior to, I mean, we don't have a set year, but like the 50s or 60s, essentially if it's a historical fact, particularly a historical fact involving some sort of suffering of some kind, we really don't want anyone who was still impacted by that event to still be around uh, and to still be potentially harmed or hurt sure. by having that story in yeah. the world. So that's really the integrity of that and like the compassion of the storytelling we do is really important to us and really important to Aaron who runs the podcast. Um, and then it's just, yeah, it's a lot of combing through JSTOR articles. I try to make my sources as academic as they can be. So I'm reading a lot of articles that were published in like Folklore Magazine. Uh, I'm also, you know, firsthand accounts are always really interesting. Kind of depends on if we're leaning towards a historical event or like a, a mythic event. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's fun. It's just, I'm doing just super, like spooky yeah. sleuping. I'm like a yeah. supernatural detective, which is quite fun. I, it's a dream job. I've only been working for them since uh, January. So yeah, it's, okay. I'm new at it. And it's uh, like just watching my own research abilities grow stronger over the past few months has been so exciting. Um, and I've become absolutely unbearable at parties. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of my favorite things, and I've mentioned this before, like I used to, I used to love shows about this stuff. Yeah. And, and one of the favorites was always, you know, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and he covered a lot of stuff like this back in the day, and uh, I keep watching to see if that's streaming anywhere. And it's not. You can you can buy like the the complete series on DVD or something, yeah. uh, but it's not streaming. But I love this stuff. Uh, I was blown away when one day I logged into Amazon Prime and there was lore. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple episodes of a TV show version. I yeah have, have to admit I have not seen. <laughs> it's not but, bad. Uh, it's not bad at all. I was I was impressed. I was like, yeah, oh, cool. I think it's mainly more. like a visualized version of the it podcast is. itself, which yep. is really cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I love this stuff too. I mean, like, I am a diehard. Like, I would say it's closer to a religion <laughs> than um, than a fandom, but Buffy fan. So oh my gosh. I, oh, my my daughter who is eleven, we just started her on Buffy. That's the in, age. That's in when the I beginning started. of August. Yeah, and so now, like two days ago, she finished season two, had a little cry. Of course. Swore she didn't have a cry. If if she were here, she would be actually bodily attacking me, insisting that never happened. Listen, tell her that if she cry. didn't have a cry at the end of season two, she is not human. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. So she's she's trying to be tough about it. But now I, I even she, asked her if she cried, and she's like, No. Well, no, and, you asked her about you, Endgame if she cried. 
Oh, that's right. I asked her about Endgame. She also yeah, lied yeah, about yeah. that. She she, yeah. she definitely cried because Iron Man was her favorite. Um, yeah. But but getting back to yeah, like the like I'm I'm so sorry. You said Buffy, and then I took over everything. Please continue. <laughs> Oh no! Please look. If I say Buffy and I get someone pumped up to start talking about Buffy, that that is the food that feeds me. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. All I can I'm, say I'm is excited they get- for her journey. Like, yeah, I was eleven when I started watching Buffy, and I have been like, it is it has shaped me as a person more than mm-hmm. any other story I've ever heard or seen or lived and, through. So I think talk- she's like really. I'm very excited for her. I've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast because of other things, but. Um, you know, the kind of being a geek mom and like the care and feeding of geeks as they sort of come up in the world <laughs> is this dance of like, you don't want to force them to like the things that you liked, um, but you do want to give them the opportunity to try out stuff. Um, and sometimes sometimes they're into it and sometimes they're not. And one of my superpowers is that I have a 100% batting record, batting record success. Like I bat a thousand with Deirdre because I just know what she likes. She refuses to believe it. Like she'll push back against it. Like as soon as I recommend something, she'll stonewall and refuse to touch it for the longest time. And then like three days later, I'll come back around and she's like face buried in an iPad two seasons deep or something. (laughs) Um, But in the case of Buffy, I am, honestly more than enjoying the rewatch itself because let's face it like what you can get streaming on hulu has not rendered well um you know it doesn't upscale in any way shape or form a lot of the early stuff is just people in poorly done rubber suits and things but obviously that the show has an arc it gets a lot better in many respects over time but i'm having more fun watching her watch it Aww, and watching yes. her kind of negotiate her own relationship with the characters and sort of figure it out and reach her own conclusions. And that's been fun. Yeah, she's making new new lifelong friends. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, two things on Buffy. Uh, they got the mustard out. They and uh, I saw a really cool thing just like a couple days ago talking about uh, they wished or there was a plan at one point or something and it just never happened. But at one point, they wanted to have Lorne from Angel mm-hmm. oh, meet okay. Tara from mm-hmm. Buffy oh. huh. and and ha- just have that interaction because they were kind of sort of polar opposites <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, that and I, 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 that made me think hard because I that was like – that would have been an interesting meeting. I don't know. I don't know why, but that just would have been an interesting meeting for me. I think they had a few plans with Tara that didn't come to pass. I know they were trying to also bring her back in the finale, um, but they couldn't get Amber Benson. And so she didn't show up, which is heartbreaking. But (laughs) (laughs) so it goes. Have uh, have either of you kept up uh, with the comics? I I haven't. Uh, actually, just a couple weeks ago, a friend of ours, uh, having heard about Deirdre doing the watch with us, um, he's a big aficionado of, of book resale shops. Uh, he came to us having bought for like a book at a book resale shop, one of Joss Whedon's spinoff comics that's set like hundreds of years in the future of the Buffyverse. It's called Frey. Um, yeah, I've seen Frey. Yeah, I sat down and I read it, and I was like, "That was a thing that happened." Um, but I, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm more into, I'm more, more into the the additional seasons of Buffy and the additional yeah, the seasons sort of, of Angel. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, six, no, not, season six of Angel, those. Angel After the Fall. Uh, you know where he's basically haunted by Wesley. Um, 
like literally haunted by Wesley. Uh, and then, um, you know, season seven, eight, nine of Buffy, those kinds of things. I, I just found them interesting to see that they, they did to your point, they had plans and they were able to do some of those plans in the, in the comics, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So there this is go. kind of spinning backwards a little bit here, but one of the things that we talked about when we recorded with Mer Lafferty, who's our episode from last week was a uh, true, con- uh, true, tr- uh, try again, Townsend, true crime <laughs> television series. And we were kind of batting around between us how they've kind of come to their prep, their, their eminence and, and people being so interested in them. Um, and I, I kind of kept returning to the idea of the sort of salaciousness of blending what feels like fantasy with something that is real. And I immediately started thinking about that when you were talking about the guiding principle for lore of trying to make sure that, that the stories you're encountering and sharing and exploring are at a point where the people who were involved in them aren't around to be harmed by revisiting those stories. And it seems like if anything, it's the 100% opposite ethos of the, of oh, the yeah. true crime move. Um, yeah. I personally am not a true crime person. I, I think a lot of true crime is pretty exploitative and it, there is this salaciousness around it. And I understand why people are drawn to it. I think you're exactly right in that it's this weird kind of liminal, it feels like it should be of another world, but it's of our world. Like the extreme of some of these horrors feels almost supernatural. Like serial killers feel like they're literal monsters, but that have somehow like leaked into our reality. And I think that there, yeah, there's naturally a fascination in that. But I do think that, you know, what it comes down to is people are gaining entertainment from someone suffering. And that's not my personal favorite vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, to each their own. So I, I'm curious. You said that you've been you've been doing the lore stuff since January. Mm-hmm. Uh, your book is it out or is it coming out? September. 13th. My book came oh, out about four. Yeah, it came out just a couple weeks ago. So it came out on September thirteenth. Okay. okay. So I'm assuming that the book was written before you ever started doing the lore stuff. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So 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 the question. Okay. So the question is, uh, you, you had the book, you were shopping the book, then you get the lore gig has, has the lore stuff just deepened your, uh, like appreciation for this to the point where you even appreciate your own novel more, you know, for, for kind oh, of going into. Yeah. I mean, I come up I with a good question it. once in a while. <laughs> I'm very proud of you, Patrick. Good job. <laughs> good job. <laughs> I think for me, I would say it's less that it's deepened my appreciation for the subject matter and more just that like it's wild to me that I got the lore job because it's already what I was obsessed with. Um, sure. This is the subject matter that was like what it was, what I was doing for fun anyways was researching supernatural folklore. Um, but what it has definitely done is sort of how I was mentioning earlier, I can feel my own research skills strengthening the longer I work for lore. And so in terms of my own work now when I'm researching for new pieces of writing, because all of my writing is based in folklore and I kind of plan to continue on that course, uh, I feel like my research is just getting better and better, which in a way I kind of wish I had those research skills back when I was first writing Thistlefoot. I mean, I researched it very heavily and I hope that that shows in the book, but I think research has gotten easier for me, I guess, is the main core of it. Yeah, you're stretching that muscle. 
Yeah, but and it really allows me to spread that. You know, I studied folklore in college. I've been writing creatively from a folklore angle for so long that to kind of flesh that out with doing this really kind of concrete academic research on the other side feels like I'm finally kind of like well-rounded myself as a folklorist, which feels really, really exciting and nice. That's That's awesome. That is super awesome. So, uh, so that, that, was... hold on, Tracy. That no, just no, no. means that the yeah. sequel. That just means that the sequel is <laughs> oh, going to be so ridiculously deep. Oh, right? uh, don't say the word sequel. <laughs> 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 it was so much work to write one. <laughs> fair, very fair. So, I mean, uh, but I mean, on the theme of like kind of deepening the 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 attachment to the folklore, one of the things that I was learning about as I was kind of doing my background research on Thistlefoot that made me go like, what? That's crazy. And also I love this. And this is such a brilliant idea is your, your reading tour incorporates puppet theater. Um, it does. And so you've, you've got reading tour dates going through the end of October, 2022 with, with some tentative stuff lined up for, for November. And there's a puppet show angle to it. So, all right, help us visualize here. Like what's, what's, What's the inspiration for this? Like, why is why is it like this is the thing to do for Thistlefoot? We need it to be not just a reading, but we need puppet theater. So there's sort of a few reasons why I decided to be absolutely bonkers and travel with a giant freaking puppet theater in the trunk of my car. <laughs> uh, one of them is that there are puppets in the novel Thistlefoot. So Isaac and Bellatine, these siblings who are descended from Baba Yaga, they were raised in a traveling puppeteering family. And so when they received this house on chicken legs, Isaac, who is a street performer and kind of a con man, sees an opportunity to make a quick buck and convinces his sister, who's a woodworker, to help him convert this house into a mobile theater and to perform their family's old show that they grew up watching their parents perform called The Drowning Fool on a year-long tour. So throughout the book, Isaac and Bellatine are actually working as puppeteers out on the road. Um, So that's sort of the first reason why I was like, oh, well, I can't let Isaac and Bellatine have all the puppetry fun. Like, I got to save a little for me. And the second reason is I feel really strongly about the idea that when a text is read aloud, it becomes a completely different piece of work, right? Where... You know, we think of written English and spoken English as being the same language, but they're actually two different languages we've become very efficient at translating rapidly between. Like marks on a page and the sounds I am making with my voice are two completely unrelated things that we just have linked. And so with that in mind, when an audience is receiving a story orally that was originally intended to be received literately you need to be really, really conscious about how you're delivering that information. And I think having a visual accompaniment, being super aware of how it feels in the space, how it sounds, how it looks, how, you know, what an audience is actually receiving in a room can make or break how they're able to take in that story. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think we've all been to our fair share of like very boring readings. And I just... I refuse to contribute to that culture. So I wanted to do something fun. I wanted to do something flashy. I personally love performing. I actually grew up in a professional touring clown family. 
I was a professional what? child clown named Chicken Bump. <laughs> yes, my father was a clown. He trained my brother and I up to be clowns. That was my summer job was touring with the family clown act. So it's like I kind of can't help myself. It's like this terrible clown compulsion I have in my blood. Were I, you, I know were you, clown compulsion is a terrible turn of phrase. but Was the whole family able to fit in one car or – God. Wow. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, this is also it's an important detail. clowns, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> the nerve. So, yeah, my dad, my brother, and I were all clowns. And my mother, guess what my mother does for work? Uh, um, she's uh, a mortician. I, I'm just, I'm trying to go for left field <laughs> here a, at this point. She's a psychotherapist. Okay. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot going on. But so so what, so so when someone comes to her with a fear of clowns, that gets real. Absolutely. Oh, that yeah. you know, that hits personally. Yeah. Oh. Like we're so going to do exposure therapy like right now. <laughs> yeah, come over to my house for dinner and we'll take care of this little problem. Oh, <laughs> but wow. yeah, so the when it came time to tour Thistlefoot, like I knew I wanted to do a performance and with puppets, like, I can describe a little bit about what this looks like because I think it's really cool. And, you know, for anyone listening that wants to come out to one of my shows, I'm doing this, like, really extensive tour and it's really fun to be there in person. So the puppet theater itself is actually shaped like a house on chicken legs. Um, <laughs> it is this kind of cabinet, this beautiful, ornate cabinet where the shutters that look like windows swing open. There's a little peaked roof that has some like Spanish moss and flora sprouting out of the roof line. There's tiny little doors in the roof that open up so you can see my mouth through it and it looks like the house is speaking. And then inside the bulk of this cabinet when you swing open the shutters is what's called a cranky. Have either mm -hmm. of you guys ever seen a cranky before? No, I don't no. think I have. Or I've if I did, cranky. I didn't know what it was called. I, many people haven't seen them. They're really magical. It's this puppetry technique where you take a scroll, often a paper scroll. Mine is made of Tyvek so that I don't tear it in the million times I inevitably drop it over the next few months. And this scroll sits inside of this box and there's a little crank on the top of one of the dowels that holds the scroll. And when you turn the crank, this scroll pans across this open space to create oh, nice. this like root. It, yeah, it can be it can be images of landscapes. Originally, it was um, used for set designs, um, and I light mine from the back. My scrolls are created by an amazing artist named Maria Pugnetti, who made these intricate, handmade like yards and yards and yards of scrolling animation that illustrates the story of Thistlefoot as I'm telling it. Uh, I also worked with a puppeteer named Shoshana Bass, who designed this beautiful handmade Baba Yaga puppet who sits on top of the roof and you know for example there's a moment where the cranky paper has this little skeleton dangling from it and there's the skeleton is attached to that scrolling paper but there's a little string in the back so that when you pull it the skeleton dances and he's down nice. below in the world of the dead and Baba Yaga she's sitting on top of the roof and she is talking to this little skeleton down in the world of the dead um, so there's these various elements, these various techniques and materials, and it really brings it all to life. And then the whole thing packs up and fits in a suitcase that is small enough for me to take on an airplane and travel around the country. So that so is, what I'm hearing is that everybody listening to this needs to go see this. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> this sounds incredible. And yeah. yeah, to your point, like I've been to, I've been to some bad, like, 
author signing slash readings. <laughs> yes. I, I think I, what I've it talked is about is people, it. Yeah, people have a hard time realizing that that tr- how essential that translation is. Yeah. Um, how important it is to animate a story for people to hear it. Because, you know, when you're reading on the page, you can back up and reread a sentence if, if, it, if you accidentally skimmed over it or you can pause, you can adjust your own pacing. But when you're hearing something out loud, you don't have the control over that. So there needs to be other aids in order to help usher and kind of uh, be this lantern bearer for a listener through the story. I, I talked about it years and years and years ago, but I, I, uh, a favorite author came to town, was doing a reading at a Barnes & Noble. I go to the reading. Uh, a lot of people showed up. It was really cool. And the, uh, the author stood up there and said, I don't actually read. He says, I don't actually read because I don't like the sound of my own voice. So I'm just going to take questions and then sat down. Wow. <laughs> I mean, And I everybody's just kind of sitting there. And <laughs> yeah. just like sitting there like this, just waiting. Like anybody going to ask a question? And it was dead silence. Yeah. I mean, there was there was no better way to kill a room <laughs> than to do that. And so I, being a podcaster, tried to get things going for, for this author and started saying, you know, I raised my hand and asked a question. Answer the question. Who else has a question? Dead silence. Like, this is not what people signed up for. They signed up for an author reading. Well, the other thing is the reading itself even if it's inexpert even if it's if it's you know a little dull in the delivery or or you're self-conscious giving it or whatever it puts front of mind the text it yeah. gives people for the any questions part something that they could ask a question about um and so i i'm certainly sympathetic to the whole i don't like the sound of my own voice thing <laughs> but that yeah i mean you're depriving your audience of a resource that will help them engage in the thing that you're hoping they'll do instead. Exactly. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it makes sense that many writers really don't like doing live readings because, you know, we're introverts. We spend our whole lives, like, squirreled away in a room with people we made up. <laughs> so that has an impact on a personality <laughs> for sure. Uh, but, you know, I'm a ham and I love being in front of an audience. For me, this is like what I wait for the whole time. Like I'm one of those writers who like the act of actually writing is kind of excruciating for me, but like mm-hmm. I can't help myself but do it. But what I like the, the light at the end of the tunnel is I'm I think someday I'm going to get to go on tour. I'm going to get to be in front of people, and then this book can be what it's meant to be, which is a, an act of communication and connection. Yeah. And so being on tour, like I tour in a way that no other writer I know tours. Like my last book, so my first book was also based in folklore and is a book length poem called the lumberjacks dove i was on the road for eight months straight i was in a new town every two days living out of the trunk of my honda fit which i built (laughs) a little like bed into i was also touring with a cranky for that one and i did a hundred readings it was totally unnecessary my publicist did not understand what was going on (laughs) i booked the whole thing myself and they were like we didn't even know that was possible so but yeah for me it's like this is the energy exchange that writing is about is it means I get to use this story to connect with other people in the real world and like find these points of commonality and yeah so come to my shows come say hi (laughs) yes we'll hang out it'll be great and there'll be puppets and the puppets may or may not be very very cursed yeah the thing the thing I have heard about the puppets is that it's not easy being green oh god Patrick Lewis wow you're really (laughs) going hard today (laughs) 
this is I I'm, I mean you should know this because you know in case of future books and you wanting to come back this this is like medium Patrick. Um, oh wow! <laughs> like, yeah, it goes, you have, we haven't seen the ceiling yet, at least not today. Hey Man, hey hey! Wait. There's a guitar right there. Don't make me play Rainbow Connection. Okay, you know Look, what? It's a beautiful I, song. I, get, I take it all back. You're right. So <laughs> a classic. So let's, um, I think what, let's. I want to capitalize on your manic energy here, uh, Patrick. While I can, let's uh, picks of the week. Picks of the week. We're feeling it. We can absolutely do picks of the week. All right. Picks of the week. All right. So it's your manic energy we're looking to deal with here, Patrick. So, <laughs> so I actually have two this week because uh, there's there's a couple of things that are number one is She Hulk. I am absolutely adoring She Hulk. It is hilarious. It's so much fun. Uh, I am horrible at pronouncing names. Tatiana Maz- Maslani, Maslani, uh, which a lot of people know from Orphan Black. Uh, is fantastic as Jennifer Walters. She's just doing such a great job. And, you know, they're doing the same things from the comics. She's breaking the fourth wall all the time, looking at the camera. And uh, it's just been a fun show. You, you've had a lot of cameos to the point where she actually mentions that there's a lot of cameos. And she's like, this is not going to be a cameo a week show, although it's been a cameo a week show. You know, kind of stuff like that. Uh, but it's been so much fun. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying She-Hulk. It's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it, it, you should go check it out. Um, as of this recording, uh, it, it's not a spoiler. It's been out there. Daredevil is going to appear uh, at some point, and I believe it's the next episode. As of this recording, it's going to be the next episode that Daredevil is going to be on there. Uh, leading into the, the new Daredevil show, uh, Born Again, that they're going to do. Uh, the second thing dropped just last night as of this recording. So we're recording on the 17th. Uh, it dropped last night on Netflix. It's The Imperfects. Okay. This is like a sleeper. This is one that I, I knew nothing about until like a trailer dropped. And I decided to watch it a little bit last night. And it, it definitely has the the X-Men kind of vibe. Uh, you know, it's scientists have been experimenting on people. And, and as you watch more, you, you hear that there's like lots of scientists out there who are obsessed with uh, immortality or taking over the world or time travel or all these things. And so they're just out there doing experiments. And so there's even a government agency that kind of goes after them. But uh, it, it's focused on three characters who have uh, a genetic disorder and some scientists are trying to fix the genetic disorder. And one of them is trying to heal them. The other one is trying to make the side effects broader. And so the side effects for these three characters is one of them essentially becomes a banshee. Uh, the other one becomes a succubus because she has pheromones that, that go out and affect people's moods. And the third one has become a chupacabra. Oh, fun. And and so he Juan can change at any point and become a chupacabra. Uh, uh, Tilda has the banshee powers and Abby is the succubus. And they just want to be normal again. They don't want to be who they are. They don't want to have these side effects, these powers. Uh, and it's just interesting. It's really good. I, I got sucked into it. So I'm like four episodes in as of last night. Uh and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it a lot. So The Imperfects on Netflix. Nice. Nice. Sweet. So, Jenna Rose, how about you? 
Yeah, so I am very psyched that it is becoming autumn. I, like, come into my power in the autumn. (laughs) I was born on October 28th. Uh, I'm a full-blown Scorpio. Apparently, I was brought home from the hospital on Halloween day dressed as a tiny cow. And this makes a lot of sense to me because it means that, like, as I was, like, as a newborn baby brought out of the hospital into the world, I like open my little eyes, I look around, and the first thing I see is like a bunch of children in demon costumes and go like, oh, so this is how it's going to be and proceed home. accordingly ever since. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so I'm feeling really great wh- right now. And I'm, I, have t- I have two um, autumnal recommendations to really get into the vibe. So the first one, uh, I bet a lot of people have already seen, but if not, like you gotta, which is Over the Garden Wall. Have you guys seen Over the Garden Wall? No. I'm familiar with it, like, conceptually, <gasps> but I haven't actually oh, seen it. Yeah. my goodness. Highly recommended. So it is a cartoon that uh, came out, I think, in 2013. I'm not entirely sure, but it was on Cartoon Network. There are only 10 episodes, and each episode is only 10 minutes long. So it's really compact, super tight. And it is the story of these two brothers, half-brothers, Greg and Wirt, who are lost in what is called the unknown. It's this spooky, Halloween-y New England forest. And they go on this sort of like Dante-esque journey through the unknown. And each episode, they have these different encounters. It's deeply based in New England folklore, in sort of Halloween tropes and motifs. The animation is beautiful. And the writing is both like really funny, but also genuinely spooky and like very complex. Um, one of the things that I love the most is the attention to detail that the creator Patrick McHale put into this. Uh, I heard him speak about it once, and he said that um, they looked up before the show aired what the phase of the moon would be on each night that each episode would be originally airing on Cartoon Network, and they made the moon match that night's <laughs> moon phase in the animation. So, like, that's, that's awesome. the level of attention to detail that is in this show, and it's, like, it's a perfect, perfect autumn piece, and I just think it's, like, a masterpiece. Uh, so, yeah, Over the Garden Wall, that's my number one. And my number two is there is this guy on Instagram called the Cider Donator. Um, And this guy's mission is to try every cider donut in New England. And so he has this account where he goes around very deeply. Oh, yeah. It's I literally ate a cider donut earlier today. Like, (laughs) tis the season. And yeah, so if you go on this Instagram account, it's spelled like cider and then like donut E-U-R. Like a connoisseur of the donut. Yes. Yes. And uh, he like rates them. So he like goes to all these farms all over New England, rates the donuts he eats. And then he actually has a link to sort of this masterpiece, which is called the New England Cider Donut Map. And it is a Google map. It's a Google map with a pin drop on every place you can get a cider donut in the entirety of New England. That's um, awesome. Oh my God. So you can go on there and like see what's near you and see if he's tried them and then there go try them yourself. There needs to be an app yourself. for that where you can just right? be like, oh, like near me. Like, like oh, this man is doing here. the Lord's work here. 
And I mean, does that include like Wegmans sort of things or is it like I don't I you know it's possible but you know I'm sure he he once in a while will try like a Dunkin Donuts brand cider donut and be like this okay, is yeah. terrible but right, right. for the most part it's like he's going to farm stands and orchards and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so See, got it th- this inspires me I think that I should do one on breakfast burritos Ooh, you you are Mr. Breakfast Burrito. You are yeah. you were you're gonna need to capitalize on that while you can because <laughs> your your change in location is going to change your yield considerably. Considerably, I would yes. read the hell out of a of a breakfast burrito map. There you go. Well, if you ever come to Denver, just go to Santiago's. Noted. All There's right. your map. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate. So I was you know planning for stuff for the show and. Uh, and it dawned on me, like, not only is this a book that I've been reading every night for the last couple of weeks, but like, this is, this is the perfect book to make the, the my pick of the week. So this is Ask Baba Yaga. <gasps> I have that book too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is not a surprise to Jenna Rose, but it may be to the rest of you. So Ask Baba Yaga, Otherworldly Advice for Everyday Troubles, is a book by uh, Ticia Kitskaya. Uh, Kitskaya. Uh, I think I've got that right. Ticia Kitskaya. And it's formatted sort of like a miniaturized Dear Abby or sort of, you know, ask for help kind of thing where there's these small statements uh, that have been messaged in with a sort of like, Dear Baba Yaga, I'm having this problem in my life. What should I do? And the responses are sort of prose poems born out of the persona of Baba Yaga. And because both the problem and its response, I, I wouldn't call it a solution per se, but the response, we shall say, from Baba Yaga varies um, considerably, but it, each one is like a, just a page. And so it's become a, a bedside table book for me over the last few weeks, just sort of like, I'm just gonna read a couple of these uh, before I go to bed. Um, so I'm gonna uh, try not to be a boring reader here, but I think the best way to understand <laughs> the vibes is to just read one. Dear Baba Yaga, I find myself in a relationship that is generally socially unacceptable. A whole community of people actively frowns upon the idea of us being together. How can I learn to give fewer fucks about what these people think? Baba Yaga. I give you this cauldron. Open it, and out of it comes a laugh, an enormous laugh with the power of wind. It winds around you and the humans who frown. It wraps around your love. It is so loud and thick that you must close your eyes and ears. It lasts for a day and a night. When it is done and gone, you look around again. What do you see? The land has been blasted by it. It has changed everything, and no one remembers what happened before it stormed the village. So I don't know, like your boss giving you trouble at work, <laughs> or like, you know, possibly you and your significant other are at odds with one another. I want to see what Baba Yaga has to say about it. <laughs> I love that book so much. It's Mine is also on my bedside table, yeah, and she's wonderful. Yeah. We did a reading together a couple of months oh, ago, and yeah, so I, I also recommend that book. And you know, there's a there's a second volume of it, too. It is. I don't have that one, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're really good. I mean, it's weirdly like genuinely good advice in addition yeah, to being like the kind of demented. Like, huh. yeah. yeah, no, they're beautiful. Fantastic. So I've I've had a ball, and I think I think uh, Patrick has too. Even though we, you know, have cut off his opportunity to to pull out the the 
guitar. Um, that, so that's the next sorry, time Patrick. Jenna comes on. So we'll, we'll, do, <laughs> we'll do that the next time Jenna Rose is on. Um, he's reaching for it now. We better close up the episode Uh-oh. real quick. Where do people find you online <laughs> and in the world? <laughs> well, you can find Thistlefoot sort of wherever books are sold. I highly recommend supporting your local independent booksellers. Uh, you can find me, Jenna Rose Nethercott, at JennaRoseNethercott.com. Uh, my name is spelled with a G, so that's G-E-N-N-A-R-O-S-E. N e t h e r c o t t dot com. Uh, you don't have to pronounce the dot com in that weird accent. I just pronounced it in. But uh, there will be my tour schedule on there. So if you want to see some puppets up to no good, you can check out my schedule and come see me in person. That's awesome. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jenna Rose. Thank you all so much. Glad to be here. <laughs> Holy crap. This year is just flying by, isn't it? Sheesh. As always, thank you for listening. Special shout out to our backers over on Patreon for putting up with all the shenanigans Tracy, totally Tracy, does over on our super secret private Facebook group. I mean... (laughs) she is just constantly posting stuff over there like you know articles uh, movie and tv show trailers even like daily music videos at this point i mean yeah that's that's totally all tracy so thanks for uh thanks for backing us if you want to know what the hell i'm talking about go check out patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw us a couple bucks then you will gain access to our super secret private facebook group now i will say you and i have to be friends on facebook in order for me to invite you it's a facebook thing it's weird so there is a process but still uh it would be really cool if you backed us and then you know joined us over there anyway robert and todd they totally promised us they would do this spinning sign thing on their street corners to drum up some listeners. And to date, they haven't actually followed through. So if you could go give us some stars on your favorite podcast platform, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, wherever you're going to to find us and listen, that would be awesome. Well, We'll work on the spinning sign thing with Robert and Todd as maybe sort of a holiday push. I can see them now, dressed as elves. And not the cool ones from Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Canoli Joe said he might, might consider some sort of social media campaign around the poodles for, you know, the upcoming Hugo season. Cough. Before I forget, Beyond the Trope hit... 400 episodes recently that's pretty cool giles and michelle were very very properly excited about this 400 is a huge milestone for a podcast to celebrate why not go check them out at beyondthetrope.com they put out a new episode every tuesday talking with writers artists and creatives from all over the place and that 400th episode was pretty cool So again, check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. Now, I'm sure that 
this is the point where I would normally have some more uh, stuff to kind of say, things to tease our backers with, but I totally forgot to write it, so. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.